The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today, I am so excited to radiate ancient wisdom with Pablo Vasquez, the author of The Sacred Gothas of Zarathustra and the Old Avestan Canon, a modern translation of ancient wisdom. I'm sure I butchered some of those words, so I do apologize. (laughs) Welcome, Pablo. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. No, you did well. Your pronunciation is pretty great. Oh, boy. You know, this master's in linguistics should serve me somewhere, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so these old gathas, um, what it, what is, so what is this book about? It's a modern translation, but a modern translation of what exactly? Yes. Uh, so the gathas are, uh, well, before I go into that, basically, I have to say that uh Zoroastrianism was uh, basically can be said to be founded by Zarathustra, uh, who we know mostly in the Upper Western world as Zoroaster. And uh, so uh, Zoroaster lived around, I would say, maybe 4,000 to 3,500 years ago. And uh, the Gathas are one of the oldest uh, religious compositions that we have still extant to us, almost basically unchanged. And uh, these are basically Zarathustra's own words. Uh, he was uh, a poet priest, and uh, in this sort of sense, he expressed his mystical wisdom and understanding uh, through poetry. And as such, what we tend to see is that the Gathas are a collection of poems that are a combination ethical teaching, spiritual wisdom, and almost a personal diary by Zarathustra, in which he details uh, all the way from the beginning of his calling 
to the celebratory wedding of his daughter. And basically, uh, the wedding marks basically that he is safe, that the message is being spread, that things are successful now, and uh, the religion will live on, uh, as marked by the union of his daughter with one of his uh, disciples. And so uh, you see a lot of that. You don't just see, you know, a a perfect man. You actually see Zarathustra begging for help, crying for help, angry at his own God for not having given him support at certain moments and not. And um, there's a certain humanization there that combines with a deep and uh, evergreen spirituality and ethical philosophy that still is kept alive this day and has influenced so many different religions, philosophies, governments, and so forth. Right. So <clears throat> Zarathustra, very old. I mean, you said 4,000 years, right? Correct, yes. What, what part of the world? Yes, uh, Zarathustra would have lived in what we consider now Central Asia, basically near the northern borders of uh, modern-day Iran. And uh, so we're talking around like Tajikistan, Uzbekistan sort of area. And uh, it's very likely that he may have traveled during uh, the time period of the Gathas themselves uh, between sort of Afghanistan, parts of modern day Iran, the Central Asian area, all in search of followers, wisdom, and also what was important to him, someone to act as a patron to basically safeguard his uh, his new teachings in a time period which was marked by uh, nomadic raider tribes, uh, you know, wars back and forth. He was looking for basically uh, some sort of ruler uh, in this geographic area uh, that would want to be uh, an adherent of an ethical peaceful, civilized sort of system. And within the text, uh, we find out that he does eventually find someone like that called Vishtaspa, uh, who is viewed as an ethical and good man, uh, and also the first patron of uh, the Zoroastrian faith. Sure. And so <clears throat> these writings of Zoroaster slash Zarathustra, um, you said that he really got started kind of around his, his daughter's wedding to let people know that he's okay um, and that everything's going to be fine. It, now, what kind of danger, what type of situation was he in? Yeah, so it goes back even to how Zarathustra was called, which makes him actually very different uh, to the founders of various different religious traditions, which is Zarathustra was not called by a human community or even commanded by a god uh he was called by what is called what is named in the text as the soul of the cow uh and this is to represent uh actually animal life in particular in zathusa's time sort of livestock and uh, friendly animals that aided in human civilization at the time period and uh basically the soul of the cow cries out uh to the heavens and says, oh, will you send someone to protect us? And th what the soul of the cow says in the Gathas gives us a uh, a clue as to the times Arthusa was living in. Um, 
the soul of the cow asks for someone to protect them from cattle raids, from uh, murder and violence and wrath and, uh, uh, you know, various destructive acts. So what we're seeing here is Zarathustra is living in a time that's full of warfare, that's full of uh, thievery and raids and basically what we would consider in modern times uncivilized. And to Zarathustra, that was the same story. He basically could not stand living in such a world. Uh, He wanted a world of cooperation, of peace, of, uh, you know, helping one another out of uh, what Zoroastrians label the threefold path of Asha, which is good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. And so um, this is where uh, Zathustra was living and why he embarked on his mission. Wow. Now, his this mission, was this a was this a, a religious mission? Was it philosophical? Was I mean, was he considered as a religious figure, a religious icon at the time? Yeah. Um Zathusa in his own time, and we know this because he labels himself as such, he was already a priest of whatever the Indo-Iranian religion was at the time um and so i think it and even though i use the word founder it may be a better word to say reformer or a redeveloper renewal because uh he didn't view himself as doing away with uh, the religion that he was a priest of but rather he believed himself in as he was setting it right um and with that, uh, he not only develops as a priest, but also as a poet, which was viewed actually in in this classical era of history, in the sort of the axial age, poets, philosophers, and priests were viewed as having basically the same job description. Their job was to reveal the mysteries of human nature, of existence, of what is out there. And um, Zathusha combined all three in his position, which made him no doubt a powerful and eloquent speaker and also uh, able to convince, uh, for example, you know, the kings of his land uh, when he finally found Vishtaspa to convince him. But um, Zathusha's own combination of positions would not have been so strange for the time period. Um, for example, if we look at uh, Homer uh, from, uh, you know, the writer of the Greek epics, Homer uh, in ancient Greece was viewed as combination, you know, prose, poet, uh, masterful writer, and also a almost a mystic and a prophet who spoke of the legends of the gods and delivered ethical truths to the ancient Greeks. Uh, and of course, this tradition continues in uh, various cousin traditions of Zoroastrianism, such as Hinduism, where uh, devotional poetry uh, is an emotion is an important part of, say, Vaishnavite traditions, uh, and also you see in Sufi traditions as well, where being a poet, a priestly mystic, and also 
you know, a philosopher is just a combined job description still in some of these religious traditions. Very interesting. Now, how do we know so much about Zoroaster now? So it's very fascinating because uh, for a long while, we knew very little. In the Upper Western world, there's always been this tradition of the pseudo-Zoroaster. Uh, it even has applied to some of the words we use in English. Uh, for example, the word magic comes from the idea that uh, the Magi, which were uh, a priestly group within Zoroastrianism in uh, ancient times, um, that they were the greatest magicians of the land, that they were masters of theurgy and whatnot. And therefore, uh, especially to the ancient Greeks, they viewed the Magoi, as they called them, as being, uh, you know, the greatest wizards known to man. And so that has developed to where even our word for magic is Zoroastrian in origin. And so in, in, this uh, pseudo-Zoroaster sort of canon, a lot of it is attributed to Zoroaster was viewed as the founder of uh, astrology, as the founder of magic, as the founder of philosophy, even, and all sorts of different things. Um, it wasn't until basically the 1700s, 1800s that we begin to have philological study in Europe that helped sort of gain an understanding of Sanskrit, Avestan, all these other ancient languages that led us to know deeper what these religious figures were actually about. Uh, the benefit of why we know so much about Zoroaster, and of course, one can argue the 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 sort of fog of history and also biased viewpoints may come into this, but it's because Zoroaster wrote so much about himself um, in the Gathas. Like I said, it was almost like a personal journal for him. Um, but part of that is also that um, it is a combination of what we know about Zoroaster, as Zoroaster says himself in the Gathas, and what we know about Zoroaster through legend and myth and story that has been passed down through Zoroastrian history, basically. Um, scholars also know, especially linguistic scholars, um, know that Zarathustra was responsible for the Gathas because the linguistic composition of it and its use of what's known as Old Avestan, which is the oldest form of Avestan. It's the, it's the mother language of all Iranic languages. It uh, it was all written in Old Avestan, and the structure of the Gathas in particular shows that it must have been written by a singular author. Um, and so in that sense, we know at least that whoever it is that is writing the Gathas is writing about themselves in a way. Um, so it, in that case, we try to apply and say, at least in academia, that this must be Zarathustra. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So that was kind of leads to my next question about what the old Avestan texts are. And mm -hmm. I had no idea. I figured that was a part of the world, a town or region or something like that. But that really refers to the language. Yes. Precursor to San perhaps Sanskrit and some of the Middle Eastern languages. Very interesting. Yes. Avestan. 
Avestan is a cousin language to Sanskrit, but both sort of comes on this Indo-Aryan, Indo-Iranic sort of background. Uh, Avestan's uh, direct descendant is modern-day Farsi. So, uh, and not just Farsi, but also the Kurdish languages and even some elements of Armenian and so folks, so, so, so forth. But, uh, one of the things that, uh, is interesting about, in particular, about the old Vestin, uh, canon is this is the, these are the only texts that are composed in old Vestin. So unlike Latin, Another liturgical language, because Avestan is primarily used as a liturgical language for Zoroastrians still to this day, uh, making it one of the oldest languages still used in ritual practice. Um, it is comparable in some ways to Latin in that sense, in that uh, ecclesiastical Latin is still used by, say, the Catholic Church. Uh, however, the Catholic Church updates Latin continuously uh, to include new concepts like the internet and so forth. Uh, however, Avestan is never updated, which means that, uh, for example, or someone like me who usually uh, is not that good at learning languages, Avestan actually becomes fairly easy after one gets over the weird ancient structure of it, especially the grammar and sentence structure and uh, the diacritics and everything like that. But um when it comes to uh, the text themselves, they compose not just of the Gathas, uh, they also consist of what's known as the Yasna Haptangaiti, which is uh, the first liturgy of the Zoroastrian community. It was likely composed by Zoroaster as well, or by Zoroaster's immediate followers as uh, the sort of gathering uh you know, almost hymns uh, that they would use with one another, um, that they would, re you know, recite and chant and the like. Um, and this, the Yasna Bengati is full of what they consider sacred. So they revere the waters, the minerals of the earth, uh, the air, the fire, so on and so forth. It, Zoroastrianism is a very elemental religion from its core. It, it's very, uh, Eco ecological in the sense that it considers uh, the earth and all of physical existence to itself be sacred as well and worthy of worship. Um, and outside of the Yasna Hatangaiti is also the four sacred mantras of Zoroastrianism. It's like it's a cousin term to mantra. Same thing. Same thing. It's just an H that's added in there because of linguistic differences. Um, but these four mantras are. Uh, treated like mantras, one recites them throughout their day, during holy events, uh, gatherings, and so forth. Um, and they're viewed as combination prayer, combination ethical lesson, uh, combination meditative uh, moment, in the same way that, say, a Hindu mantra or a Buddhist mantra would be as well. That is fascinating. My little linguistic heart is just so excited. Did you know that Radiate Wellness is more than just a podcast? That's right. We're also a comprehensive holistic wellness practice. Find out about our services, practitioners, and upcoming events at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. While you're there, 
visit our podcast page to read more about our great guests and even donate to the podcast. If you like our podcast, you can help in other ways as well, like subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening right now. Tell a friend, a family member, or a coworker about the great content you find here. And if you wouldn't mind, please give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or a positive review. Sounds like a small thing, but it really helps. You might like to know about our Facebook communities while we're at it. We have a free community, the Radiate Wellness Community, on Facebook for news and great free content. Our subscribers group is Radiate U, as in the letter U, but also, well, you. There you'll find curated replays of past classes, guest interviews, and more. And now, back to our podcast and back to our guest. Uh, so what, what are these texts about in this book? And what do they have to teach us? Yes. So I think uh, it can be divided into two categories. One, first, the ethical lessons, which to Azerastrian are actually more important than any of the cosmology, any of the spirituality, mostly because Zarathustra places a greater emphasis on the ethics than anything else. And part of this is that uh, there is... Uh, a sort of ethical dualism at play. Uh, Zarathustra asks us to be virtuous as opposed to not virtuous. Right. Uh, in modern parlance, we may use terms like good and evil, but even those are a little bit too restrictive to describe what it is. So, for example, uh, uh, an ethical lesson I like to use in this situation of what it's like to be virtuous and decide between virtue and not virtue in a Zoroastrian sense is uh, situational ethics. So, for example, if you run across a thief that just stole a loaf of bread and that thief claims that it's to feed their family, that they're starving, what does one do? What would be the virtuous situation there? Uh, to someone with a very dichotomous good and evil sort of viewpoint, one might say, ah, but stealing is completely bad. Uh, we cannot condone this. Or they might say, ah, but to feed the family is completely good. None of that matters. But to Zoroastrian, it's a complex question that requires a complex answer. And uh, there is no easy solution to anything. And this is all built around the central premise of the faith, which is found in the Gathas, which is choice. Uh, Zoroastrians do not believe in determinism. Uh, they believe that uh, the core value of all existence is free will and the power of choice. Um, even to the point that uh, to answer the, the problem of evil, that usually rises up in religious and spiritual situations is, you know, why does evil exist? To his ration, the answer is easy because we are given the choice. And uh, Ahura Mazda, the greatest deity within Zoroastrianism, uh, gives uh, all conscious beings uh, the choice uh, whether to be virtuous or not and to infringe on that choice would be to infringe on all choices. 
And so Zoroastrians don't view Ahura Mazda as being omnipotent, but rather omniscient. Uh, uh, so because uh, Ahura Mazda stands for uh, wise lord or lord of wisdom or sovereign wisdom, however one interprets it. And so this is a god of wisdom, of knowledge. And so uh, Zoroastrians would believe that Ahura Mazda would know all paths everyone is going to take, but it's our choice as to where we go to it. Even the relationship between humans or conscious beings and divinity uh, it's, tends to be different from other faiths. There is no idea of submission or even of you know, total devotion. Uh, there is, however, how Zarathustra himself describes his relationship with Ahura Mazda, which is one of uh, Hamazor, which is translates to co-worker, to ally, to friend. Uh, and he even labels uh, Ahura Mazda as his best friend. And so this is how Zoroastrians view all divinity, whether it's Ahura Mazda, other manifestations of Ahura Mazda, minor divinities and so forth. Uh, they are not beings to cower or beings to just shower of endless sacrifice. Uh, they're viewed as uh, as one would have a relationship with uh, your best friend, your best childhood friend, so to speak. Um, and uh, I do personally think that is lovely. And it ties into this whole idea of uh, the cosmological elements of it, which is there is uh, a life force that permeates the universe known as Asha. Uh, very comparable to almost the way the force is used in Star Wars, I like to joke, um, which is this grand force that sustains everything and that we all have access to. And to align yourself to Asha gives you great benefits, not just uh, in spiritual well-being, but it's believed to also give you physical well-being, to give you clarity of thought, to give you uh, drive and purpose and energy. And so uh, one follows the threefold path of Asha in order to align themselves, which is to have good thoughts, good words, good deeds, or as more proper, virtuous thoughts, virtuous words, virtuous deeds. And this is the sort of path one takes uh, as a Zoroastrian in their everyday lives. Uh, the opposite of that would be druj, which is known as the lie. Think of it as sort of anti-life, uh, an illusion, uh, almost like uh, Maya in Hinduism, uh, in which uh, we, you know, when people steal, when people uh, commit acts of wrath, of greed, of tyranny, uh, all these things, by the way, are mentioned in the Gathas as horrible acts. So to be tyrannical, to be uh, wrathful, to be uh, a liar, uh, these things are not good and are seen to put the person on the path of druj instead, which is to lose themselves in the illusion because Zoroastrians believe in the good nature of all creation, of all conscious beings. And therefore, uh, to commit such acts is not to act in your rightful nature, but instead to lie to yourself, so to speak. Uh, that 
you know, whenever someone tells you, whenever you've done something that is uncharacteristic, you know, they'll say, this is not you. Uh, to Zoroastrians, that is core to whenever they see someone committing a uh, an unvirtuous act it is almost like, this is not you. Let us try to brush all that away and get you back on the right path. And within that is also the idea that uh, this is a universalist faith uh, in that everyone is called to follow this in whatever way is best applicable to them. And uh, which is why Zoroastrians are not huge on uh, proselytizing. Uh, they would rather people be ethical and follow the path of Asha than, you know, be almost like me, someone who took on the full conversion and initiation and everything. Um, and along those lines, it is... Uh, this idea that uh, if there is an afterworld, an end times, so to speak, um, this they will all go to what's known as the House of Song, uh, which is almost like a paradise. And the word paradise itself comes from Persian, actually, uh, paradisia, which uh, sort of is actually meant to refer to a beautiful garden. Um, and uh, to the Persians, seeing a beautiful garden was a reminder of how everyone would be living a afterlife that would be like spending time in a beautiful garden, so to speak. Right. So <clears throat> these ideas of Zoroastria, um, was, were these radical at the time or was, yeah. I'm sorry, Zarathustra, I suppose. There's, yeah, I'm struggling with these names, but... Oh, no worries. Were these seen as radical at the time? How were they received? Oh, yes. Uh, they were viewed as absolutely groundbreaking. Um, Zarathustra even, I mean, points this out in the Gathas. Uh, not only is he turned away by various uh, other priests and uh, rulers, of the lands that he travels through, uh, he's basically exiled from his own home. Um, he is chased down. There is one example in which he chastises uh, a man for uh, giving him uh, two gifts that he never asked for, and gifts in quotation, of course, uh, where uh, he's basically told to sleep on the on the cold steps outside of this man's house instead of coming in um and uh you know to not be hospitable especially in that time period was viewed as an act of violence so uh for someone to not open the door especially for a priest of the land uh would have been uh, a major rejection so to a lot of of uh, the rulers and priests, basically the establishment of the time. Uh, this was unthinkable. You know, what Zarathustra was saying would have upended everything that they were doing, especially since, you know, raids and war and everything brought in great wealth for these rulers and mass sacrifices and the like brought in even greater wealth for the priests. So the Zarathustra condemning these sort of things was just not good. So Zarathustra was popular amongst, say, the common folk, as a lot of, you know, founders of religions tend to be. Right. Yeah. And instead uh, was very much chastised until he found 
uh, good King Rishtaspa who listened to him and decided that this was a path worth following because he was tired of war and tired of uh, the wrathful age in which he lived in. Right. And now Zoroastrianism has taken on, I guess, the trappings of a religion. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes. It is. Uh, followers would call it a religion and a philosophy at the same time. Right. Right. Yes. Mm, kind of like Buddhism, I suppose. Although yes, yes, philosophy. But so, how does one become a Zoroastrian? How does one practice Zoroastrianism? I would say the one can become and practice a Zoroastrian through two paths. Uh, it's interesting, like you mentioned, um, uh, Buddhism. You know, it has its spiritual focus and it has its philosophical focus, and both can coexist at the same time. One can see this in places like Thailand and, uh, you know, Vietnam and whatnot, where it uh, you see people, for example, uh, have a combination of going to uh, temples and, you know, begging the Buddha to give them good grades on their exam. But at the same time, uh, you'll have people who are studying the sutras and trying to find the philosophical core of them. And in Zoroastrianism, you have the same thing. Um, one can, anyone, anyone can uh, live as a Zoroastrian, practice as a Zoroastrian, call themselves a Zoroastrian. Um, and this is sort of easy, you know, all it requires, like any other philosophy, is a good amount of study uh, and, you know, a decision and a firmness to decide, yes, this is what I am now. Um, and in that same way, it's similar to a lot of Buddhists who do not have to go through any sort of initiation to become Buddhists. They just decide they are and then live as Buddhists. And to a Zoroastrian, that's a lovely thing to see. Even to Zoroastrians like me, who have undergone sort of religious initiation processes, um, because as I said earlier, a lot of Zoroastrians tend to combine the two. To them, it isn't either or. It is, I will live and study and live up to the philosophies of Zoroastrianism, but I will also take part in uh, the rituals and prayers of Zoroastrianism. And... Um, this is uh, what makes Zoroastrianism unique. I was recently at the World Zoroastrian Congress in July, and uh, it was the only space in which you could see, because Zoroastrians are orthopraxic, it means that uh, orthopraxis means uh, being a strict adherent to the practices and the ethics and the philosophies of a faith, as opposed to orthodox, which is uh, having a strict adherence to a set of beliefs of the faith. Um, so we all said the same prayers at the same time, attend the same rituals. We all live according to the path of Asha, but in just one grouping, let's say five Zoroastrians, uh, you could meet an atheist, a, uh, you know, you could meet uh, someone who believes that Ahura Mazda is some sort of spiritual incarnate being somewhere. Uh, you could meet someone who believes that Ahura Mazda is just the collective unconscious. Uh, you can meet someone who accesses their spiritual beliefs through psychedelics. And then you meet someone who considers themselves 
to be practicing the faith of their ancestors in the strictest way that they believe to be possible. And this is because to a Zoroastrian, belief is nice, and having beliefs is an important part of what it is to be a Zoroastrian, but that's up to you to decide. And so what is more important is that you live as a Zoroastrian, that you act as a Zoroastrian, and that you gain the wisdom. I mean, Zarathustra himself says uh, to find wisdom wherever you may find it, wherever it is found. Uh, so we're not even limited to the borders of our own faith, but rather uh, Zoroastrians go out and they, for example, in India, amongst the Parsi Zoroastrian community there, uh, they celebrate uh, with uh, the Hindus uh, in uh, worshiping Ganesh as well. Uh, and for example, in um, areas like Kurdistan and the like, uh, Zoroastrians there uh, link up with the Sufis and so forth. And in North America, uh, there were, I, I could say there was a sizable, no doubt, contingent of Zoroastrians at uh, the most recent uh, Burning Man and the like. Sure. So, so what one sees is this is, and it's part of why it has survived so long. Um, because it is flexible, it is adaptable, and it cares more about being virtuous than it does about, you know, wow. holding the exact same beliefs at all times. Right, right. So why did you choose Zoroastrianism? What was your background? Yes, um, I was born and raised as a Catholic. Um, I almost became a Jesuit. Uh, obviously, that did not work out. I then went forward and uh, started exploring uh, various different religious traditions. Uh, I attended what's known as the Parliament of the World's Religions. It's a sort of large interfaith event. Very wonderful. I recommend people search for it. Look it up. It's great. Uh, 10,000 uh, people, a hundred plus different religious traditions all gathered under one roof. And um, it was there while walking amongst the booths of, you know, what I like to label spiritual agora, uh, where uh, every different religious tradition had a little booth. They were trying to give you, you know, pamphlets, books, try to talk to you and tell you about their faith. It wasn't an attempt to try to convert anyone, but rather to inform people. And that's what was lovely about it. And for the first time ever, I'd run physically into Zoroastrians. Uh, in school, uh, and I'm pretty sure most folks listening know about the uh the sad state of the north american education system and so in school i was definitely taught that zoroastrians were all dead that it was an ancient religion of ancient persia and is no longer um so imagine my surprise when running across uh these zoroastrians and i learned from them i spoke to them learned that it has been continuously practiced unbroken basically since the time of Zarathustra and uh, which makes it actually the oldest uh, continuously practiced uh, uh, religious tradition. Um, so I, uh, I spoke with them. They gave me some books to bring back. One of them was a translation of the Gathas and uh, I read it and I fell in love. Basically, it's one of those moments where you look at something and it just clicks in your mind and you think this is exactly what I was looking for. And from there, I became obsessed, 
read everything I could, listened to everything I could, talked to everyone I could, watched everything I could, uh, and eventually ended up getting a master's degree in Zoroastrian studies. So uh, now I'm here today. That's exciting. Is this your first book on it? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it is my translation of the Gathas uh, and the other old Avestan texts. Uh, so the sacred Gathas of uh, Zarathustra and the old Avestan texts is actually an attempt of mine after comparing and reading 25 different plus translations seeing all the various errors and biases and uh, some of it it all ranged from either simple translation errors you know dating from maybe 200 years ago when we didn't know that much about Avestan to People, for example, Orientalist European academics in the late Victorian era who were trying to make every other religion basically be Protestant Christianity. And so uh, I wanted to try to clean all that up, basically grab uh, a good linguistic brush and uh, clean all that dust off what is, to me, a beautiful text. And while doing so, not only... Did I pay attention to these various different translations? I also, and also went to the core of the Avestan, the original Avestan. I also looked at how poetry was conducted at the time of Zarathustra, not just in uh, Iranic lands, but also uh, in surrounding cultures, uh, how different philosophies and beliefs were at that time period, especially amongst the Indo-Iranian peoples. Um, and uh, definitely looked into uh, not just written tradition about uh, Zoroastrianism and Zarathustra and the Gathas, but also oral tradition that has been passed down by Zoroastrian families for centuries, possibly even millennia. And so um, I used all that to inform this translation in an attempt to not just clean all that away, but also formulate it and use uh, the right words that put across the message of Zarathustra without even my own interference, my own biases coming in. Because the beautiful thing about Zoroastrianism is one can even disagree at points. You know, there's a, there's a point where Zarathustra is uh, saying, well, since I'm doing this, I should be given a thousand camels, you know, <laughs> because he's he's just like us. He's just thinking, you know, I've been given this great task and I'm not getting any help. You know, what's up here? And so uh, I thought that was funny. And, uh, you know, I just shook my head at it, you know, because it it is humanizing. But at the same time, one wouldn't expect a religious figure to be like, give me a thousand uh, camels and horses. Um, but uh, so even in translating and getting to the truth, the real message of it all, um, I even found stuff I didn't even know was in the text, uh, which was lovely. It was a it became both an academic uh, process for me and also a spiritual process, uh, almost uh, a meditative, personal, spiritual process for me as well in uh, translating this. And so I wanted to also put in a language that, uh, uh, you know, remove the these and thous and whatnot of the 1800s and put it in a way that anyone could pick up the text that say uh, a Barnes and Noble or from Amazon or where have you and be able to uh, 
understand it immediately without needing to uh, parse the language or uh, even worse, need to have a companion text to understand it. Right, right. Yeah, that is certainly exciting. And I, I can understand this is very much needed in the world right now. Um, do you have a website? Yes, yes, I do. It is mazdayazni.com. So that is M-A-Z-D-A-Y-A-S-N-I.com. Now, Mazda Yazni is an old term in Avestan for uh, a Zoroastrian. So it literally means uh, a worshiper of Mazda. And Mazda itself means wisdom, so a worshiper of wisdom. Um, and on the website, uh, you'll be able to find my academic and theological articles. Uh, I keep also a little blog with some thoughts. My most uh, recent blog is about uh, how uh, reproductive rights are viewed in, uh, in Zoroastrianism, which the ancient term for it is Mazda Yasna, which is uh, worship of wisdom. And uh, I have a little section about my book coming out, The Sacred Gothos of Zarathustra and the Old Western Canon. Uh, there's a resource section uh, where one can find out how to become uh, Zoroastrian, important links, places of pilgrimage and the like, and a link to my Zoroastrian Q&A podcast, uh, which I do there. And uh, yes, it even co uh, includes a contact section. So if anyone has any questions whatsoever uh, about anything relating to what I've talked about today or to Zoroastrianism, feel free to shoot me a message. I'm happy to communicate with folks. So again, um, the website is masnayazni.com. We will put that in the show notes, so take a look at that. And Pablo, again, is the author of The Sacred Gathas of Zarathustra and the Old Avestan Canon, a modern translation of ancient wisdom. Pablo Vasquez. Thank you so much for joining me today, Pablo. This has been enlightening. I seriously have been looking forward to it because I love to learn new things, and this has always been something I've been interested in learning more about. Oh, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for having me on board, for sure. So happy to do so. Thank you. Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.